Okay. Title of the sermon this morning, The Gospel, Cross, and Wisdom of God, Part 3. We're going to be looking at a lot of scripture this morning, a lot of, uh, a lot of jumping around. At the end of last week's sermon, I had asked you if you would please try to make an effort to read the remainder of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and then through 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in preparation for this morning. I won't ask by a show of hands how many people read it. Um, I also mentioned that the main thing we'd be concentrating on this week would be this uh, scriptural distinctive, for lack of a better term, or scriptural characteristic in these verses, which is Paul um, putting forth this idea of the wisdom of God. I should say the Holy Spirit through Paul, talking about the wisdom of God. Paul talks about this in great detail throughout these chapters, as you can see from the corporate reading that Pastor Steve just did. And we left off last week with verse 18, where Paul says that, quote, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let's move on to verse 19 and following this morning. Paul, in verse 19, cites Isaiah 29, verse 14. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now, here's what we need to know about this passage in Isaiah that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. In context, this verse uh, in Isaiah is part of a plethora of of passages in Isaiah whereby Israel is repeatedly warned by God not to attempt to match wits with God, with him. And yet they did. (laughs) And so have we at times in our lives, if we're going to be completely honest. And, excuse me, the Corinthians were no different, which is Paul's point in quoting Isaiah 29, 14 in the first place. The Corinthians had become enamored with the philosophies of their Greek culture. And as such, their pride needed to be dealt with. And the Apostle Paul, of course, addressed this matter by contrasting the wisdom and power of God with the wisdom of the world. That's what's going on here in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. So Paul reminds them in verse 19 by quoting Isaiah 29, 14, that God has already said that he will destroy the so-called wisdom and cleverness of man, which is why, beginning in verse 20 of our text, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says this, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul's actually quoting here, um, technically, that one line, uh, Isaiah 19.12 instead of Isaiah 19.14. So he's playing around there with a few verses in Isaiah. And he goes on in verse 21, and he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its, through its wisdom, through its own wisdom, did not come to know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In other words, it wasn't the wisdom of the world that led us to know God or leads us to know Christ. Verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Verse 24, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? Why is he? Well, look at verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's why. In other words, church, true Wisdom and power are to be found paradoxically where one would least expect them in the place of their own apparent negation. To the human eyes of the unregenerate natural man, the crucified Christ symbolizes helplessness and absurdity. I mean, God has a son, and his son comes to earth, and he's going to nail him to a cross. That's absurd. That's what the Greeks, that's what was going through their minds. The cross appears to be foolish to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, the cross is brilliant. God is brilliant in this plan of salvation. And furthermore, the pattern of God's wisdom and power is exemplified in the Corinthians' experience with God if, if they've been given supernatural eyes to see it, right? The natural man, the depraved man, the man born into original sin is not going to see it without God's uh, regenerating his heart. We talked about that last week. Now, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Paul says in verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are Key verse, verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see it? Do you see it? There's no human wisdom in the cross. 
There's no human wisdom in the gospel, in the entire plan of salvation. There's no human wisdom in it at all. If there was, man could boast and share in the glory. But guess what? God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, not, no fancy speech, no fancy rhetoric, or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, okay? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul premeditatedly, folks, made his speech simple and plain and just preached the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. No swanky doctrine. No swanky rhetoric. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul does not take this preaching the gospel lightly or flippantly ever, and neither shall we. Verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There it is again. It's all God's power and it's all God's glory. But wait, look at verse six of chapter two. It gets even better. Paul says, beginning in verse six, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, a hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of glory. Remember, I mentioned that in the very first sermon. Before the foundations of the world, God prepared Christ to die. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, <clears throat> for to us God revealed them through the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So you see, there's a significant contrast through the entirety of chapter 1 and 2 between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. That's basically it right there. We just saw a moment ago in Isaiah 29, the man's wisdom will perish. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, remember verse 22, that those who professed to be wise had become fools. Only a fool would exchange the truth of God for a lie and serve creatures instead of the creator who made the creatures. 
and that's Romans 1.23. But in this society that we live in today, we may not be worshiping birds and animals like those in third world countries, but we, or I'm sorry, but what we worship is just as bad at times and probably worse. We worship the creature instead of the creator. We worship the natural man. That's our tendency as human beings to worship men instead of our creator. How do we worship the natural man? We worship him by living out his philosophies like white on rice. I'm not necessarily talking about the philosophies of um, Kant and Descartes and Heidegger. How about some of the more base philosophies that we worship at the altar of so-called human wisdom? Human wisdom, folks, dictates that I must look a certain way to be accepted or to fit in. I have to be drinking this particular brand of coffee and eating in this particular fashionable restaurant, and I must follow these political pundits and cheer for that particular team and not that one. And by the way, folks, the church isn't exempt from this worldly wisdom worship. Many Christians, quote-unquote Christians, have particular celebrity pastors and celebrity ministries that they follow. Please don't misunderstand me when I say this. I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't have a favorite pastor. I know I'm the favorite of everybody here. (laughs) Steve's not even moving his head. Um, (laughs) Of course. Okay, there are different stages in our respective Christian walks. Okay, think about this. When the Lord turns us on to different types of men who teach and preach what we need to hear for that season of our Christian walk, for that season of our sanctification process before the Lord uh, moves us on to the next guy who will minister to us providentially in our next season of sanctification, okay? Maturity. I'm not talking about that. That's necessary and it's healthy to be on hot on certain people and certain doctrines at time, certain books, because God is growing you in a certain area. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I am instead referring to the men and women within Christendom that many people, and I say many without reservation, come to idolize and worship. They dress like them, talk like them, walk like them. More importantly, they get caught up in their their teachings and their teachings are not orthodox. They're not good. And if the teaching isn't orthodox, then 
I guarantee you there's going to be other departures from biblical and ethical norms, okay, that will follow. Like examples, the wrong view of a marriage union or a wrong view of the Old Testament or an aberrational view of how to raise children or where to allocate personal finances, et cetera, et cetera. Most of these guys also, they don't have churches. They have churches that look like Mecca. They have malls that look like churches. And they're literally called, many of them, compounds. They call them compounds. And, you know, there's the, the one with the, the crystal cathedral. Um, there's the prayer tower. And, and there are the ones with multiple, you know, satellite campuses. All sorts of humongous, humongous churches. And the pastor, and this, these are real examples I'm giving you. These aren't, aren't uh, fake. I took, took these, checked them out, fact-checked them. The pastor has his own tax-exempt 16,000-square-foot parsonage with 7.5 bathrooms for the pastor, his wife, and the, their two kids to live in. Again, real example. The church publishes his own books, okay? Um, he has a private jet paid for by the church. He has a, his own pilot paid for by the church and his own bodyguards. And the church has a gym and it's equipped with, quote-unquote, Christian personal trainers. It has a movie theater. And let's not forget, it has a restaurant. And I'm not just talking about one church. There are many that fit this bill. And we could go on and on and on. My question to you is, who pays for all of that? Their worshipers do. Worshippers. They idolize these guys. There are millions upon millions of so-called quote-unquote Christians who worship the natural man rather than the creator. This is worldly wisdom masquerading as church. One more time. This is worldly wisdom masquerading as church. Yet, it's increasingly all around us and many Christians can't quite figure out why, but I'll tell you why. Because they're following the celebrity man instead of the God man. Period. They are following worldly wisdom instead of the wisdom of God. Here's the difference between the two. Now listen carefully. Please go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 24. Paul says, where's the wise man? We just read this before. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Think about that for a minute. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached 
to save those who believe. Meaning, the gospel to the natural man sounds very foolish. Like I said before, God has a son. God sends the son to take on human flesh and get crucified and nailed to a cross. That is foolishness to people in the world. Verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs, Greeks for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, chosen, elected, predestined, whatever you want to use there, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Did you catch it? The very last verse. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Christ, I'm sorry, if Christ, ask yourself, is not at the very heart and center of everything we do, church, and as Christians, then we are not operating in the wisdom of God. Why? Because Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. We just read it. Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Therefore, he must be central in everything we do. The cross must be central. The gospel must be central. Not the gym in the church or the restaurant in the church. Not how many people view us on TV or listen to us on radio. The internet. It's Christ and him crucified. Drop down to verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1. But by his doing, God the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Everything we are and everything we have is in Christ, or at least it should be. And if it isn't, we're worshiping something else that's worldly. We have fullness. This is the other thing I want you to see this morning, the word fullness. We have fullness in Christ. If you would go to Colossians chapter 1, for starters, <clears throat> Colossians one nineteen. Paul says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That means Christ, okay? For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. Now jump over to Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9. We get uh, a more specific glimpse into this fullness that Paul is speaking of. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, 
rather than according to Christ. One more time. See to it. Think about the megachurch that I just described a moment ago. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 9. For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Verse 10. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's the circumcision of the heart. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him, with Christ, through faith in the working of God. This was all God's doing who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven you of all your transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Church, there's your fullness of Christ. That is the fullness of Christ in you. All the fullness of the deity dwells in him in bodily form. He dwells in you. Everything that is in Christ that is yours is for the taking because Christ secured it for us. The circumcision of the heart, the regeneration, the forgiveness of sins, no condemnation, no guilt, all of those things are in the fullness of Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus wasn't a uh, great teacher, or I should say just a great teacher, as so many today like to tout. Jesus wasn't just a great prophet in a line of many great prophets, which are which our our Muslim friends love to say. No, Jesus was and is God, period. Jesus was and is God. Folks, I don't believe this stuff just because the Bible says it. I believe it because I know him. I know Christ. I've known him for 40 years Or I should say, he has known me. He knew me first. And he has known me from before I was even created. But for 40 years, I've walked with him and talked with him. And he's broken me. And he's chastised me. And he has miraculously delivered me and saved me. I know him very well. I'd give my life for these truths. And I'd give my life for this Christ, would you do the same? Would you? Somebody walked in here today and put a gun to your head and said, recant and live or confess Christ and die, what would you do? Because there are Christian missionaries all over the world that that very thing is happening to them. 
And Jesus is not only God, but he is the head over all rule and authority, Paul says in verse 10 of Colossians 2. And in Revelation chapter 19, you don't have to go there, verses 13 and 16, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no one greater church. All of the wisdom of God dwells in Christ. All the fullness of Christ is ours in our Christianity. And Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 tells us that it is through this king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that we have been forgiven of all of our sins. And as we just read, our certificate of debt was canceled out and nailed to the cross of Christ. Knowing this, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, your old self was crucified with him and your body of sin, I'm sorry, that your body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. One more time. Your old self. Think about who you were before you were saved. Think about it for a second. Your old self was crucified with him that your body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Do we mess up and sin on a daily basis? Of course we do. However, sin no longer rules over us. Since we are in Christ and Christ is in us, while we are in this earthly body, we don't have to be slaves to sin. We don't have to be mastered by sin. We don't have to allow it in all the time. Sin should no longer have dominion over you if you're a Christian. No one's sin should be habitual in your life as a Christian. You have all the necessary tools. You have all that is in the fullness of Christ Jesus to overcome habitual sin. As I said, this is part of the fullness in Christ that we're talking about here this morning. It is part of the wisdom of God. Certainly not the wisdom of man. First Corinthians one twenty four. This is the verse that I want you to go away etched on your brain and your heart. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And everything that I just outlined here this morning is part of the power and wisdom of God. In and through Christ Jesus our Lord because of his death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension 
on our behalf at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as, as I speak. And again, this is all foolishness to those who are perishing. They scoff at it. What does Proverbs 1, 7 say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. They despise it. They hate it. And so I'm telling you, if you are, if you are within the sound of my voice today and you reject this eternal Christ who is offering you salvation from your sins and from eternal damnation today, things will not bode well for you in the end. They won't. And for you and me, folks, the end could be today. It could. I knew a guy, um, his name was Dwayne. And he was, uh, he was a salesman with me in a company that I worked for in the late 80s. And um, even though Dwayne was in his 30s, he, he weighed about, I'd say, 400, 425 pounds. And uh, nicest guy you'd ever want to meet. And we used to meet every Monday morning for a sales meeting at King's Family Restaurant, you know, King's, 7 a.m. And he was always the first one there. And the, the, the irony was that he was coming all the way from New Alexandria, PA, which is way out there. At, and we were meeting in Upper St. Clair. And so he was always the first one there. And so when we came in this one Monday morning, and all the salesmen were there. There were like 10 or 12 of us. And he wasn't there. And he never got sick. Um, we just kind of all looked at each other with, you know, doubt. Like something must be going on. You know, Dwayne's not here. And I had, I had just shared the gospel with him the week prior to this. And he, he stopped me. Um, partway through and he said Mike I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior I know and I said okay okay Dwayne well this particular day when he didn't show up we you know we ate our food and we went back to the office and and by that time you know, there were no cell phones at that time but by that time somebody had called the landline uh, in the office he had had a uh, a major heart attack on the Boulevard of the Allies, and he crossed over into oncoming traffic, and he hit one of those um, big culture on dairy trucks head-on, dead. Um, we never know when we're going to get called home. You just don't know when you're going to appear, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and each one of us has to give an account for what we've done, whether good or bad, in the body, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And the sad part about, about Dwayne was that him and his wife had fertility issues, and they tried for years and years 
to have kids, and they couldn't have any kids, and they had just adopted a baby girl, and they only had her like two weeks when when he died. Um, but what I want you to take away from it is obviously he was saved, and God called him home at a very uh, young age. So I I don't mean to be morbid, but I do mean to be sober minded, and I want you to be sober minded. Things like this happen all the time. If you don't know Christ, please give, pray and ask Christ to come into your heart, into your life, confess your sins, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins, turn your life, surrender your life over to Jesus. Let's pray.